The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Falling stars in the day sky Let no one know our beauty As we hold the hand of God And burn And burn As we fly
must be like two falling stars in the day sky. I will not turn my heart from you. You're the source of all my celebration. I will not turn my heart from you. You're the source of all my joy. You, you, you. All my joy is you. You, you, you. All my joy is you. As long as I am I, I am nothing but darkness. You are my light, you are being. I am but appearance. You are my light, you are being. You. Whichever way I go, you are there. Where is there to go where you are not? Whichever way I go, there is you. You, you, you. Everywhere is you. You, you, you. Everywhere is you. Heaven. I've sold for a grain of sand. You are my heaven with all its wonders. My heaven is you. You are my heaven with all its wonders. My heaven is you. Cast away the curse of knowledge and then like my light you are my love my beloved you are my book my light my love my beloved is you Principle of gentleness 
is from you.
us be like two falling stars in the day sky let no one know our beauty as we That defies and surpasses every description of ecstasy and love. We are burning, burning as we. Falling stars in the day sky. Let no one know our beauty as we hold the hand of God and tradition in this community when we've lost someone to extinguish a candle. And so it's with great sadness this morning that I invite us to extinguish a candle for Trudy Lionel, who died in the early morning hours this Friday after a long, courageous battle with cancer. We will let the congregation know when the memorial service takes place, but I do want to let you know that the family, Trudy's husband is a member of Or Shalom, the family will be holding Shiva 
this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoons. And so if you're interested in signing up to attend Shiva, share stories, that information will be available. Just email me and I will get back to you. It is Earth Day. <laughs> that sound you hear is a bird who made its way in this morning and is with us. Or did it just make its way out? I can't, rem I can't tell. I can hear it periodically. And Earth Day reminds us, as I feel more and more reminded lately, that part of the healing of ourselves in the world, in this moment in time especially, is to come back into our bodies, to remember that we are this connected body, mind, and spirit, and we are not just agents of production or machines. And so I want you to, I want to invite one, a uh, couple of practices to help us do that and do whatever your body feels called to and whatever your spirit feels called to. No, there is no compulsion in these moments. But as we begin worship, I would invite you all to think of all the things that have your body tight or filled with worry or fear and invite them to leave and welcome in what gives you life and peace and joy. And if those gestures help you to do that, make space in the busyness, invite in the abundance of time. Make space for joy. Or go for a moment of worry and pull in possibility. And then holding your hearts at your, your hands at your heart center or wherever feels a centering posture to just breathe into this moment and bring yourself fully here, present to whatever the hour has to offer you or whatever comes up for you in the hour that you need to be present to. And so we begin the process of remembering self to self in the deepest way. And we light this candle of welcome for everybody who's here in body and all who are with us from all the places that we now gather, that we're here in spirit together. And I invite us as part of the embodiedness of worship to sing together hymn number 175. It's in the gray hymnals that should be in front of you. We celebrate the web of life. I invite you to rise in body or spirit or whatever feels good for you and sing together. It's magnitude. 
and mine our future is to come with words that were and are. Respect for water, land, and air, which gave all creatures birth. Protect If you'll join me in our unison chalice lighting, the words of which are in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. If this is your first time in our sanctuary or joining us via live stream, welcome. If you're on live stream, I'd encourage you to find the order of service. There should be a link in the chat or somewhere easy for you to find so you can follow along. And anyone can get connected more to the congregation by filling out our connections form, which allows us to send you the Wednesday flame, which is our set of announcements. And on Friday, we send out a link to the live stream and the order of service, so it's all easy to find. So please fill out that form, and we will make sure that you get ever more connected. But as you'll all notice, the order of service, as usual, has lots of opportunities, especially the ones that are coming up most quickly on our calendars. Not only ways for those who are remote to connect to the coffee hour, which those of us will gather for outside, but other opportunities for deepening your spiritual practices or asking and answering those questions about the world and our place in it, in conversation with one another, or serving and witnessing. So I invite you to take advantage of any and all things that call to you at this point in your life, wherever you are. And we do have a few special announcements for today. Gino, wearing his Sunday best, will share with us the first. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Gino Porcinano, and one of the many lovely functions I have here is to come talk to you. Now, for those of you who've been with the congregation since pre-pandemic, I want you to close your eyes and think for a moment, what's the most fun thing that you, you're not closing your eyes over there? What's the most fun thing that you've ever done in this church? I'll give you a few seconds to think. Do, 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 do. Now, let me answer that question for you. The most fun thing that you've done, I'm willing to bet, is go to the all-church retreat. After a couple years of not being able to, we are in full retreat! <laughs> However, we do need you to sign up. Uh, if you need scholarships, they're available. Uh, and you need to apply for those by the end of this month. The last day to sign up for the retreat is, um, is Mother's Day, May 8th. And for those of you who have not done this before, maybe you've just joined us, maybe you've only joined us through the retreat, what we do is we go up to Occidental California, 
we relax, we break bread, we drink wine, you have to do absolutely zero, and it's awesome. So hopefully, all of you will be able to join us. And it, uh, it's Memorial Day weekend. Thank you very much. It is awesome. There's archery, there's stargazing, there's storytelling, there's a talent show. It's, there are beautiful redwoods. I, I second that it is one of the most fabulous things in the church year. I just want to call out a couple other things. John, did you want to give a tour for people today? Okay, so John Burens, who just gave us the fist up, is um, willing to meet folks who want to right after service up here and take you on a tour of the, the building, but also the history. John finished a history of the church, which is in its final birth pangs and should be out by fall, which should be extraordinary. We're really looking forward to that, but he can give you a snapshot of some of, some of what lives in this building and its history. One o'clock, those who would like to, well, we can gather in TSK unless you want to run home and join remotely to hear more about the search process, because you probably all got the email that we have hired our associate minister, our minister of congregational life is what we're calling her, the Reverend Laura Shenham, and to hear more about that process and hear more about her and how this kind of affects some of our future plans, please come and find out more, and then there will be another session um, later this week. Wanted to remind people that our offering this morning, so you know in advance, there's more about the organization in the order of service, but it is the David Seldrick Wildlife Trust, which works to safeguard the habitats and the lives of um, elephants in East Africa, particularly Kenya, but other places too, and does phenomenal work there. Ties in beautifully with our service today. And finally, in addition to reminding you that if you want to participate in Shiva, you should email me, I also just want to remind people that next week is Bob Lane's memorial service at 2 o'clock, so May 1st, here. So put that on your calendars, too, and join us for that celebration of his life. This concludes the announcements for this morning. I'd invite you to just take a moment and greet those closest to you, and then we will call you back together to say our covenant and sing our doxology. Now it's time for our spoken covenant and sung doxology. Think about the connection that we make with each other when we say our covenant. We don't have a creed necessarily, but we do have these promises to each other. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
On this Earth Day Sunday, I'm gonna invite us into a slightly different ritual of remembrance and commitment. At a conference that I attended in January, the leader of the workshop that I was part of, who pitched a workshop that he said was designed to help us engage in climate catastrophe through community rituals. He spent most of the time with us getting in touch with what we love and what we can see that we have lost, that is suffering on this earth. People named the ravages and the cherishings that were closest to their hearts in the workshop. And he would later say or imply that the reason we spent so much time in that place, in this time that was so limited that we had together was because we cannot begin to heal or connect to the place of fierce activism if we have not allowed ourselves to remember what we love and live in the grief around it. So this Earth Day, let me ask us to breathe in and center ourselves. And to go to those temples within where we each put on the altar what it is we cherish. Those places that are sacred to us in this world. those animals or species that we love, that are sacred to us. Those plants, trees, ecosystems that are particularly sacred to us. I invite you to speak out loud into this time and space, some of what is in and on that altar. Gigantic Falls. I will strike our gong two times for the blessings of night and day that hold or have held these sacred parts of the natural world.
And now I invite you to call to mind and heart the changes that you have seen in these places you know as cherished. To the species or the ecosystems. whose beauty and existence has been a joy and succor to you. To allow the vulnerability to connect to some piece of the catastrophe of global warming, climate change, that is the price you know intimately. And if you feel moved, I call you to speak that out loud in whatever words you can find for it. disappearance of island homes. The honeybees. The hummingbirds. strike our gong for the hours of night and day, the entirety that is held and watched over the suffering and the loss of these sacred places, creatures in our natural world. And I invite us into prayer. Spirit of life, God we know by so many names and who is beyond all names. We pray for earth with gratitude for the nurture of life, for holding life to her with gravity and soil in ocean and on vast plains of the Serengeti and mountains. So many extraordinary landscapes that to some are home and to us are sacred. We pray in grief and confession for the loss of lands, the compromise of ecosystems, for plants and animals, species, insect and fish, and the cost to life of human greed and disconnection and ignorance. And this day of all days, we pray for ferocity and vision, 
to awaken all the places within us we know as capable of great sacrifice and extraordinary ingenuity. We pray to that place within that can swivel the course of a life and be born again to some new way of being and being in relationship to oneself and others. We pray for whatever moves a whole species like our own to radical change and revolution. And in that prayer, we pray, Spirit of Life, for life itself to be served and flourishing to be the fruit of our work and grief to cease or simply be someday the grief for past wrongs healed by grace and daily choices of some changed relationship to the landscape of life and earth that will be ours again. And that all that we love knows it's right in its lived experience to be safe and whole and have its honored place. And we know our rightful place too. And life and joy abound in the knowing So may it be. Amen.
once I drank the colorless wine, I was free from the world of colors and smells. Now I am but a soul in love, a lovesick heart crying, crying. I just remembered this morning how to make an elephant out of a balloon. Somebody told me it looks like a dog with a long nose, but <laughs> there's that guy. I stood right up here one fine Sunday and proclaimed, damn everything but the circus. E.E. E. Cummings said that, and I agreed with the sentiment, though I've always had some reservations. Not anymore. The so-called greatest show on earth is no more kaput. No more aerialists swinging through the air with the greatest of ease. No more magicians doing magic tricks, nor showgirls, nor clowns to send in. Cotton candy, candied apples, giant pretzels, all vanished. And especially no more tamed wild animals. No lions, nor tigers, no bears. Oh my. And especially no humongous gray pachyderms which is just fine with me. It is my contention that these great animals were never treated humanely or fairly, and that was in no small part responsible for the death of the circus as we know it. Jumbo the elephant, one of P.T. Barnum's star attractions, was not treated kindly. He was an 11-foot, 6-ton animal, and he was tragically killed by a runaway train in Ontario in 1895. They say perhaps his trainer was intoxicated. Worse, perhaps Jumbo himself was intoxicated, as it was common practice to give the giant spirits to calm him down. After Jumbo's death, Barnum had him stuffed and put on display in one of his museums for 25 cents apiece to see him. Jumbo had a difficult life, but nothing compared to Topsy. Topsy was a 28-year-old elephant who had killed a spectator the year before and been sentenced to death. So in 1903, Thomas Edison purchased Topsy for the express purpose of electrocuting the poor beast. You see, Edison 
was for his invention of direct current and claimed that Tesla and Westinghouse's alternating current was unsafe, even deadly. He made a one-minute silent film that his company called Electrocuting an Elephant. But what they actually did to her is so cruel and unspeakable that Vanessa would not let me say it from the pulpit, not in worship, not without a trigger warning, not with one, though you can look it up if you like to look human cruelty straight in the eye. Perhaps the most bizarre elephant mistreatment I researched was that of Tusco the elephant, a resident of the Oklahoma City Zoo. He'd been brought in from Arizona to be a mate for Judy the elephant. However, Judy tired of his advances and slammed Tusco into a wall one day, knocking off one of his tusks. Tusco was not discouraged by this and actually seemed even more enamored by Judy's attention. Along comes a prominent psychiatrist and author named Dr. West, who in an attempt to induce a condition in bull elephants known as must, artificially, administers 297 milligrams of LSD to Tusco. Tusco immediately fell over and had seizures. The scientists quickly administered an anti-seizure drug and the seizures stopped, but Tusco died of the overdose. LSD was not yet illegal, and nor had it become popularized. Ken Kesey's Merry Prankster bus ride was still five years away from happening, and poor Tusco suffered for our ignorance. It may seem odd to you that a professional clown like me would be against the circus, but mistreatment there of all kinds of exotic animals has always made my blood boil. One commonly used tool on the elephants was the bull hook, a long pole with a sharp hook on it designed to achieve obedience. In 2016, Governor Jerry Brown, whose mother went to this church, signed a ban on bull hooks in California, so there is some progress. Now I find my heart more firmly aligned with non-animal circuses, such as Cirque du Soleil, the Canadian entertainment company, who are the largest producers of modern-day circuses in the world. Change in this world is wonderful and certainly appreciated, and they are committed to not ever using animals in their act. And you're already inside The only way to see it Push your reason from your mind Come without your baggage and leave yourself behind Come without your baggage Come without your baggage baggage and leave yourself behind Too much baggage just gets in the way Leave it on the curb, throw it all away No space for other, no closet or shelf There's only room for one, so you can't bring yourself Got to come without your baggage Come without your baggage Come without your baggage And leave yourself behind 
stuck there perceiving that you're separate from the one You can see a candle, but you can't see the sun So come without your senses, come blind, deaf and dumb Come without your baggage through the eyes of God, see one This morning and much of the sermon is drawn from a book titled Elephant Company by Vicki Constantine Croak about a man, James Howard Williams, and some working elephants in Burma, now Myanmar, and the ways the world brought them together. There are many elephants that feature in the book, but one in particular is a male, 23 years old, when our protagonist meets him standing even then eight feet tall, that is the elephant, not the man, taller than the elder elephants around him and eventually who would reach nine feet in height, majestic by all accounts with tusks that angled out, making him look, it was said, roguish, a look accentuated when he cocked his ears. Drawing from Williams' diaries and interviews, Vicki Croak writes about this amazing creature. She writes, Burmese tradition held that an elephant of good quality has a skin that is wrinkled like the rind of a custard apple, a darkish gray color. The elephant named Bandalu, Bandalu, Bandula, mistakenly had that. The lavender shade of his skin was exquisite and splashed across his trunk and high cheekbones were pale pink freckles as delicate as a field of flowers. Yet he was as tough as any wild elephant. So superb a specimen was he that every forest assistant, no matter where in Burma he was based, would claim to have managed this elephant at one time in his career. It was said that he did things that no other elephant could. He had a vast understanding of human language. And while most elephants could distinguish among a few of the camp's tools, Bandula knew them all. When asked to choose a hammer from items laid out before him, the big tusker could reach down with his trunk and pull it out. Though he appeared to enjoy the work, no one would call him obedient. Bandula had a mind of his own, but from birth, it proved to be a wise and generous mind. He even seemed to have a sense of humor. Occasionally, after he hefted a large log to the edge of a cliff or the bank of a river, he would pretend he could push it no farther. He would pantomime the effort of a shove again and again and behave as if the wood were suddenly unmovable. Only after his Uzi, his 
driver or handler would beg him to stop clowning, would he suddenly flick the log over the precipice with no effort at all. Then, as all the people who knew him would attest, the elephant would rumble at his own joke. Here ends our reading. I love the way the birds sing louder when the music is playing, like they're in conversation with us in here. Jacqueline Woodson, a famous writer for, among other things, her National Book Award-winning memoir, Brown Girl Dreaming, writes, the more specific we are, the more universal something can become. Life is in the details. If you generalize, it doesn't resonate. The specificity of it is what resonates. I think that's true, and I think it holds for what we love, love enough to work for and sacrifice for. I don't think you and I fall in love with the world in general, but the specifics, and then our love grows out from there. 
So thinking about Earth Day, I got to thinking about how we have to save the world, but we don't save the world because we fall in love with the abstract world, or we don't start there. We start with the small things we fall in love with in the world, some of the ones we named this morning. So we could start anywhere to remember why we want to save it all. So how about the elephant? In some ways, elephants are unlikely creatures to fall in love with. Their skin is thick and hard. If you've ever touched them, they have these wiry hairs that come out of it. They're strangely put together creatures. I mean, at least from my perspective, maybe they think that of us. Sometimes looks like some of the creatures in the universe, God had some bits laying around and stuck them together and was like, that'll do. The elephant sometimes looks to me like one of those. I always liked them, but I think I started to fall in love with elephants, really fell on a three-month trip through Southeast Asia, when at the time I was in the jungles of northern Thailand and watched an elephant stop mid-stride and reach down into the jungle and pull out from between the grasses a small piece of carved wood in its trunk and hand it up to its mahout, the handler, the driver, who sat on the back of his head. Well, Mahout took the wood that was handed to him, or trunked to him, I guess you could say, looked at it, and tossed it back into the jungle. The elephant stood still for a moment, refusing to move, and then slowly lumbered forward as if not understanding the stupidity of his mount, and reached around to where it had been thrown and found it again, and gave it again to the man on his head. At this point, I think the driver, knowing his stubborn match, tucked the wood into his pocket, eager to get moving. The piece of wood I was able to see from where I stood was one of the pieces that went between a bar on the saddle that sat on the elephants, a platform that had a bar attached so that its rider had something to bounce up against and held those two bits together. It wasn't the one that matched his saddle, but it was one of those. It gave me a window, just a peek into this big, lumbering, enduring, but intelligent, nuanced, relational, determined creature. And everything I've learned since has made me love them more. Especially Vicki Constantine Croak's book, Elephant Company, which I cannot recommend highly enough. It's part natural history, it's part human-animal love story, it's part heroic war story, it's all wrapped into one, and it's so readable. And it begins as a book about a company of elephants in Burma, and one man who's in charge of a group of them, this Welshman, James Howard Williams, a man his friends call Billy. Williams, as the backstory, had survived four years of brutal service in the British Army, in what was then called the Great War, soon to be called World War I. He'd seen battle on four fronts from Egypt, where he served in the Camel Corps, to fighting on the mountainous border terrain into Afghanistan. It was all brutal. It was a war that left many of his contemporaries dead and many others maimed physically or emotionally. Williams arrived home miraculously physically intact, but refusing to talk about what had happened to him in the war, and clear about what 
would be healing to him was time alone in the jungles of Burma with elephants, something someone he had met in his journeys in the war had said was possible if you worked for the Burma Teak Company. This choice wasn't a total surprise for those who knew Williams. He was a Welshman who had a love for the natural world. It started as a child. He grew up near and wandering every day for hours the moors that were close to his home, all seasons of the years. He would watch the world around him, he would write, till he could predict where the animals would go and where they would build their nests, find them without ever having seen one by reaching into a bush, knowing that that would be the perfect place for a given bird, until he could unravel all the secrets of the mysterious natural world at his feet. And so, despite his father's attempt to buy him some land near the family farm to keep the young man home, Williams was hired by the Burma Teak Company and eventually made his way to the jungles of Upper Burma where he was given oversight on some of the company's most precious resources. Its most precious resource, its elephants. It was 1920, and Burma was under British rule, and it produced, well, the British extracted from Burma 75% of the world's teak, a wood that many of you may know is impervious to insects and has an oil that's part of it too that makes it um, protective against corrosion, metal corrosion, so it was a beloved, beautiful wood that was also loved by boat builders, the British Navy, among others. But there were no roads to get into these jungles where the huge teak trees grew. It was the elephants that made the harvest of teak possible. Elephants who could get through the forests, felling branches and trees and small brush on the way, and drag the felled trees, the ones they helped fell, to the dry riverbeds during the non-monsoon part of the season. And then when the rains would come, they would lift those logs and float them downstream to merge with other tributaries where people would meet and tie them together into huge rafts, and eventually they'd make their way to European and other markets. But without the elephants, there was no Burma Teak Company. Williams's job was threefold, he was told, to supervise and pay the men who worked in the camps, to tend to the medical needs of the elephants, and to make sure production was keeping pace. To do this, he would move between the various camps, checking in and tending to the needs and issues that arose, and to prepare, he read everything that was available, which wasn't a lot, but everything he could about elephant medicine, and started to get to know the animals. This was the part he loved more than most who did his job, and he was good at it. Immediately, it was clear as he inspected each animal, learning to touch its whole body, that they were as interested in him as he was in them as he traced their bodies, their trunks would roam around his body. And he already knew from his life in nature that different animals had different personalities, and so he started to learn theirs, the gentle ones, the playful ones, the stubborn ones. He memorized their bodies, the scars, the telltale signs of aging and the bends and tears in their ears, the relationships 
Some companies had parents and children working side by side, but in others there were mothers who bonded together, though unrelated, to raise their calves like a chosen family of aunties. Each day, the elephants would work for eight hours from morning until late afternoon. In the next 16 hours, he discovered they were set free to roam the nearby jungle. Bells hung around their necks so they could be found by their keepers the next morning. Setting them free was an easy way to keep them fed, is the truth of it. Easier than harvesting the feed, because hard-working, logging elephants could eat 600 pounds of fodder a day. They would grab most of it with their trunks, putting it in their mouth. The trunk, this multi-use appendage, a nose that is five times more sensitive to smell than a bloodhound's nose, an appendage of 60,000 muscles, and the trunk also, an organ to modulate the sound of the elephant's voice, it turns out. Much of an elephant's communication is actually infrasound, a sound whose frequency is so low that it doesn't register to human ears, but communication that can reach as far as five miles, apparently, Infrasound, however, was something that Williams could feel the first time he met them, the first time he was among the elephants. This odd sense he had that the air around him was vibrating. It wouldn't be until the 1980s that scientists would confirm what Williams and the elephant keepers suspected, that communication was going on between the elephants in this vibration they felt in the air. And there are so many stories of Williams and the elephants, how he followed them into the jungle at night, despite everybody's warnings about what was there, tigers, dangerous wildlife of all kinds that waited, how he would see when he watched them what they were capable of. It wasn't unusual, for instance, for elephants at night to find their way to some cultivated patch, a banana field or other farm whose bounty looked pretty beautiful, but knowing that their bells would give them away to the farmers as the farmers slept, the elephants would scoop up in their trunks thick mud and stuff it into the clapper of the bells. And then a night of gorging and a destroyed harvest would ensue. They were brilliant, they were clever, they were rational. There's a story he had of an elephant that he had treated for months for horrible festered wounds, trotting one day into the camp right up to him where he sat, drinking his cup of tea, and then sitting down right in front of him. He had no idea what she meant to communicate, so he patted her and the mahout, the handler, came and asked her to get up, and she trotted away. But later, when it was the time for the formal inspection of the animals and the careful running of his hands, he found, as he ran his hand over her back, a warm place slightly raised under her skin, and then when he looked, a small opening showing signs of an infection. Perhaps the reason that she, who had learned to trust him, 
came immediately to show him her back, where she sensed this festering wound and wanted it cared for. There are beautiful stories and heartbreaking stories like the mature female elephant who in the night in the jungle accidentally brushes against a plant, one that releases this kind of caustic substance, except that she, in some panicked run from a threat, had the ill luck for it to brush against her face and cornea and is blinded. Her son stays with her, begins without instruction to walk ahead of her every day, close enough that she can wrap her trunk around his tail so she can continue working and making her way to the jungle with him to feed at night and to stay with the pack and to survive. But maybe the most dramatic stories, I mean, there are many, is how Bandula and Williams bond the moment they meet this extraordinary, majestic elephant that everyone wants to claim a relationship to, he and Williams have this bond. It turns out, Bandula's been raised by a handler who early on sees this extraordinary little baby elephant who does all the commands that are given to his mother without being taught any of them and sees the intelligence, but also that this elephant needs to be handled not in some of the brutal ways that animals were broken to serve the teak company and industry. So treats this animal with kindness and rewards, and it would change the way other elephants were trained, but, but it also maybe opened space for this elephant to be in the world a little differently. There's the story of Williams growing sick in the jungle dangerously sick, as so many people did who went from Britain to work there. Even the man who wrote one of the classic books on elephant medicine died in Burma from fever. And Albandula seems to sense that Williams is sick, maybe from the smell, maybe from the way he is moving slow and bent over. And how it's monsoon, when they normally wouldn't travel. A season when an elephant's leg would go three feet down into the mud. And the energy it took then with each step to pull, suction the leg out. How exhausting it was, so why they stayed in camp, but how Bandula allowed them to put Williams on his back and went days without balking or resisting through this monsoon jungle, a trip that included fording a river where the waters were as high as this enormous elephant's back, where each foot had to slowly move forward, not to lose its footing and be carried down the river, taking blows from tree logs that raged down the river like missiles and got Williams to care so that he survived. And how the two would go on to work together and face World War II together and become war heroes together. I've learned more about life from elephants than I ever did from human beings, Williams would say later in life. Courage, 
loyalty, the ability to trust, and the good sense to know when to be distrustful. Fairness, patience, kindness, humor, not a bad way to learn, he said, because the elephant takes a more kindly view of life than we do. Williams would say how he learned the difference between being a bully and a leader from elephants, how to woo a mate, which in case you're wondering is stay close, watch them, be respectful, and wait for the invitation to come closer. How he learned all of this from observing and being in relationship to these animals he cared for, who cared for him, who helped him heal from one war and accompanied him through another. Edgar Villanueva, Jesus, Martin Buber, and wise people through time have said that the myth of separateness is one of the most tragic errors, human beings, that we have fallen error to through time. Separateness as that thing that makes us treat other living creatures as a thing, from circus animals to refugees to the whole web of life to exploit and extract, as if all of life are just resources for our use, including other human beings. All of this out of this myth of separateness, disconnection. I'm pretty sure that the healing from this starts then with connection and the cultivation of that again in us. In rituals like we did today, to name what we love and feel connected to and even grieve for. To make space for what it means to love people and places and the wide expanse of life outside ourselves and all it makes us vulnerable to. To start wherever we can. The elephant, the garden, the places we grew up in with their fauna and landscape. But from there, wherever that is, to find the strength and devotion to lift the sick earth feverish onto our backs and head out into the raging monsoon rivers and mud to walk her, to walk us all back toward healing. Because all we love depends on that. So may the spirit of Bandalu and all that is gorgeous and all that is fierce and all that is connected in this world go with us. Amen.
invite us to put down our hymnals, and if you feel moved to join hands, are you okay joining, or, or you cannot join hands with other people, if you want to cross your arms across your chest, if you're immunocompromised, or just feeling like you want to be present to your own centeredness, feel free to do so. And so we stand in connectedness. In our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Amen. 